0: I'm excited about how technology is uh, being democratized. How it's plunging in cost. One
1: of our missions is to positively
0: impact one billion people. The relevance of a new technology to solving problems that affect like a billion people. All great stuff happens because someone inspires someone else to do something. The next wave
2: of innovation is going to be eroding the territory. How's it, everybody? Welcome to 2021. Hope you had a great break in 2020 and that you are ready to take this year on with positivity and energy. These recordings of these podcasts were done during the lockdown period of our Exponential Africa live show. Hope you enjoy them. There's some amazing people on it. Uh, Take a listen and learn something. Time to move on to the main segment of tonight's show, Robots to the Rescue panel. In a time where touch is still essential, robots have come to the rescue from early detection to scanning for fevers or delivery or protection. Robots have stepped up and shown us how the future could look like with greater assistance from them. Robots have played this um, incredibly important role to help fight and assist during the COVID-19 pandemic and we're going to be discussing that with the panel as well as we're going to be looking at some of the latest developments in robotics and why now is the time to exponentially expand in the world uh, with robotics and in our global markets. Robots extend and augment our abilities as humans, and how will this help us, and as well as help the disadvantaged? And we're gonna discuss with the panel how robots will transform our lives from the way we work, are entertained, educated, and travel. We have an amazing panel for tonight, and I'm really excited to get going. We have Silas Adekunle, Benji Rosman and Peter Zing. Silas Adekunle is a Nigerian-British robotics technology entrepreneur, engineer and inventor. He was previously the CEO of Reach Robotics, a company he founded during his undergraduate studies and, and which created Mechamon, an entertainment and education platform that combined robotics, AR and gaming. Mechamon was launched globally with distributors such as Apple, and the company generated millions in revenue and raised millions in venture capital. Silas is now focused on cloud infrastructure for robotics and automation in Europe and enabling robotics on the African continent, starting with education and research labs. Silas, great to have you on the show. How are you doing?
3: I am well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for joining us from uh, all the way from the UK.
3: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here
2: um silas do you want to tell us a bit about your amazing journey i mean you're 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 still quite young in terms of um what you've achieved how you know how did your journey start and uh how has it been
3: <laughs> thanks for for calling me young although i don't uh, it doesn't feel like that anymore i'm now i'm going to be 29 this year but still still relatively young um, so in terms of my, my journey itself started in Nigeria, so I moved to the UK when I was about 12 years old uh, uh, with my parents and uh, but my interest in robotics and engineering had started you know back in Nigeria. Um, I loved everything, biology, everything, zoology, in fact, um, I try and travel a lot to get exposure to, to wildlife and continue that into my adult life. So, so I've spent quite a bit of time in, in South Africa around that as well. When I moved to the UK to cut the long story short, you know, went to after school clubs, learnt robotics in the same way that some of the kids in in Ghana are now having a chance to. And uh, I went to university, uh, studied robotics. I'd always known that I wanted to make a living through uh, robotics and in my final year or penultimate year actually, started a uh, company called Reach Robotics. And what we set out to do was to be the first to combine robotics, gaming and augmented reality. And that was really to bring a platform out that uh, I thought the consumer robotics industry didn't have at the time. The technology was there to create something that looked like it was from science fiction, but you know, th- where, where was it in real life? And, um, you know, we brought that product to life over six tough years, um, took, you know, rate to the company from just myself and my co-founders to 65 plus staff. We raised a, a few million in revenue venture, uh, 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 we generated a few million in revenue and also, uh, uh, raised venture capital as well. And then late last year, um, closed the business down, and uh, I acquired some of the assets out of the, the business. And that was mainly because of the tough climate of the consumer uh, robotics industry. And what I am now focused on is, uh, first of all, as mentioned, cloud infrastructure for robotics and automation. And we can dig into that a bit more later. And then second, uh, more, more importantly, is you know robotics on the African uh, continent. And the reason for that is, obviously, it's the passion for, for myself, given where, where I come from. Um, but there are two challenges that you're looking at there. You have to look at the education infrastructure, and you also have to look at the labor market itself as well. And if Africa doesn't want to be left behind, and also the fact that there are so many young people and so much talent that's being untapped into it's a no-brainer in terms of a continent that needs support in developing that ecosystem. But that's also going to be a great challenger in the in the long term as well so that's a little uh, a bit of background on, on myself
2: no brilliant thanks thanks so much for that and uh, we definitely want to touch on a bit later what what you what you mean by uh cloud infrastructure and automation in robotics that sounds really exciting and um i think that africa needs uh help help from from people like you and uh, and some of our other panels so thanks so much we're going to move on to our next panelist who is benji rosman Benji Rosman is an associate professor at the University of Witz. I'm going to say this time, not Wits Vatersrand, and sound non-South African, where he runs the Robotics Autonomous Intelligence and Learning Laboratory. He is also a Singularity University faculty member, specializing in machine learning and robotics. Benji, thanks for being on the show.
0: Thanks, Mick. it's great to be here.
2: So, Benj, um, you 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 really are trying to change the game in South Africa, and you you've you've you know some of the smartest minds have come from the courses that you've taught that I know. Uh, what are some of the things you're doing now at Vits to really you know push robotics further in South Africa?
0: Thanks. So, when I finished my undergraduate, and I wanted to carry on studying. I was always excited by technology and all the cool new advances. But to carry on, I had to go abroad and study in the UK. And I I vowed that that should never be the case again. No one should ever have to leave the country or the continent to study state-of-the-art ideas in technology such as robotics and machine learning. And so in my time since coming back to South Africa, I've been trying to push, along with a number of other amazing colleagues that I work with, um, to build the kind of environment you would see at any of the top universities anywhere. So we've been trying to get our students to be an active part of the international community. Um, We've been investing in technology and um, actual robots in our labs. And then in a kind of broader sense, we've been involved in a number of initiatives to grow machine learning and robotics on the African continent and to try and help other labs start up and foster collaboration with other people and get students from across the board into into the field that I'm really passionate about. And just one of those projects was the Deep Learning in Darbo, which has now become the largest machine learning summer school in the world. And together with a number of colleagues that are all either based in Africa or from Africa, we've been growing these kinds of platforms to allow thousands of university-level students and people in industry and startups and so on to get more exposure and experience and connections in this world of amazing technology. I think it's so exciting and
2: and it's so reassuring that what you're doing, it sounds sounds like this is exactly what we need. Um, We spoke, I don't know if you saw a bit earlier, but we spoke a bit about reinforcement learning and how they are training uh, the robots using reinforcement learning. Do you want to just touch on that very briefly, that that concept?
0: Sure. So that's actually the area of, well, my particular focus in research. And that's the kind of intersection of machine learning and decision making. So that's really how do you learn to make decisions? And there's a field I find fascinating. It's got roots that tie to biology and psychology and all sorts of things. And it's this idea that unlike many simple problems, maybe not simple problems in machine learning, many of the common problems in machine learning involve given an image, is this a cat or a dog? And that's what we call supervised learning. But the the kinds of problems we work on here is about behaviors. So can I make good decisions now to put myself in a good position to make better decisions later? And over time, achieve some sort of behavior that's, that's really what we had in mind building these systems. So those are the kinds of ideas that you see with a challenge like learning to walk. Um, you need to make a number of small decisions to achieve some grand behavior at the end of the day.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much for that. And we'll definitely dive into a bit more of that with some questions later. Our next panelist uh, we have for this evening is Peter Zing. Peter is the co-founder of Transhumanism Australia and an associate director at KPMG working on technology and growth initiatives. Peter is also part of the Singularity University faculty and is is an advisory board member for the Singularity U Australia team. He is also an executive member of Science Party Australia. Peter, thanks for being on the show and joining us all the way from Australia. Hey Mick, how are you going? Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We really appreciate that you have taken the time. What's the time then now?
1: Uh, it's 1.30, but it's only about what an hour after I usually sleep. So it's uh, it's great, to, and to be privileged to be part of this awesome panel.
2: No, uh, so thank you so much for doing this at this late hour. Uh, I really, I uh, really enjoy a lot of your posts and and your brain, and you've really stretched my thinking over the last couple of months of knowing each other. We met at the Singularity, Singularity Australia Summit last year.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. And it was great to see you in person and see the world come together in such a remote place such as Down Under. So uh, it was really awesome to meeting you. Um, yeah, there's just so much news happening. It's so hard to keep up. You know, a single person wouldn't be able to do it. So I think collectively, we'll have a go at it and try to do a good job as well.
2: <laughs> and do you want to just explain awesome to us what is transhumanism? Like, are we going to connect with the machines? What is is it that you focus on? Yeah,
1: I mean, it sounds very cyborg, right? It sounds like superheroes. But essentially, it's about how do you transcend the limitations of our human biology through science and technology? So it could be everything from using smartphones to then slowly integrating more and more technology into your body. Uh, we've seen some biohackers here in Australia. They've got uh, chip implants to help them use as payment passes. Um, and then you've got more far-fetched things like uh, brain-computer interfaces, which are being used by people with uh, disabilities. But in the future, it might help us uh, enhance ourselves uh, in essentially upgrading our brains connected to the cloud and uh, leveraging the AI so that we don't get left behind.
2: Wow, it's super exciting. And uh, that leads, I think, thank you for that. Uh, It definitely leads us into our first round of questions with the panel. Um, You know, Benji, what what do you think are some of the ethical practices we need to put in place to make sure that we build friendly robots and when we connect them to ourselves, that we connect them in the right way? You know, how do we do this ethically?
0: I mean, that's a huge question and, and a question that's applicable to any of these new technologies. I mean, we've all seen the terrifying movies and of, of robot uprisings. And while I don't think that's the real thing we need to worry about, there's there's a number of challenges that range from, range from um, machines being able to make uh, decisions that are ethical with what we agree in society are ethical principles down to things like making sure we don't have, say, racial biases built into our systems. And I think these come up in all sorts of interesting ways. So there have been studies to try and elicit what the um, ethics and principles are in different societies. And it turns out in different countries, there's different values. And I think this in itself presents a great challenge because we're not even clear what all of our ethical principles are that we should be trying to emulate in our machines. And firstly, what I'm very excited about is this gives us the opportunity to actually ask these difficult questions, um, which maybe was just in the realm of philosophy before. But for now, we really have to get society to come together and agree what are the set of norms and ethics that we do want to be emulating.
2: I mean, Silas, when, when you made the Mechamon robot, what, what ethics did you put into that robot? Was there any ethics or, or was it at a, a level uh, bef- before that?
3: I mean, um, it's a great point that, that Benji made in terms of kind of where humanity is right now um even we aren't fully clear yet on all of the there's, there's no sense of a collective value because humans are so different and so when you're creating robots you know on the first hand you have to you know make sure that they are legal you know you, the, the laws are generally in most cases designed to protect us and protect human human lives and so you know when it comes to designing robots and building robots ultimately as it stands right now they are a product so when it comes to something like Mechamon, which is designed for entertainment and education, you know some of the things we have to be careful we had to be careful about were you know data, confidentiality, all of those things. Now, as you start to build more advanced uh, robots, though, and, and you put more decision-making power into those robots, and especially if those robots start to embody forms that humans are familiar with and you know robots that kind of look like us, then there's a lot more consideration and a lot more responsibility on, you know, our, our shoulders and particularly around points in terms of, you know, everyone's familiar with the concept of training data now, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't train robots properly or pro- provide them with a diversified uh, uh, data set as a starting point, then you can end up having robots that only think a certain way if we, if we can use the word think like that. So those are some of the, the topics around the, but it's a very broad, complex, uh, deep topic.
2: Peter, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I really agree with Ben and Silas on, you know, it should reflect society's values, but those values are constantly changing, even throughout time. So if we look back, you know, centuries past or I in mean, decades past, our societal values reflect very differently to what it is today, and it'll be the same going forward in the future. Um, What I'm really concerned about is that the data right now is sort of very centralised in the major tech companies Um, and in China as well, it's sort of centralised across those major tech companies as well with access by the government. So when we look at it from a centralization perspective, um, in the future it's sort of going to increase more and more and the values will be reflected by those, uh, what the tech companies can determine, uh, inheriting any biases, any things that should be made transparent Um, and all the AI ethics that we're currently challenging um, at KPMG as well. So, you know, alternatives to what this might look like in the future where it's more decentralised, there are some proposed initiatives um, using, you know, distributed ledger technology. Singularity net rings a bell. Uh, Basically, it's an AI marketplace where anyone can contribute their AI and uh, if it's used by others, there's a reward system on how that's monetized for each of the individual AI publishers. But um, so that way, it sort of allows more people to participate in these AI and robotic initiatives. Whereas right now, it just feels like the tech companies are having a, um, you know, essentially eating up all the smaller companies, especially in the current climate.
2: So, Peter, thanks. I think that that was going to be my follow on question was that who's actually deciding? Is it the tech companies? Is it governments? Is it the IEEE, who's actually deciding what these ethical practices and standards should be?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, thought leadership papers and uh, the standardizations of it, the IEEE you mentioned. Um, in Australia, there is the Data61, they actually released a, a thought leadership paper on what are the, uh, the AI and ethics standards, that's the starting page. But um, you know, Australia essentially is a net importer of these AI technologies. We're not the large tech companies like in the U.S. or in China. And so I think that sort of roadmap is also being pursued, but I'm keen to hear from Benji and Silas around what's happening in South Africa in the U.K.
3: Um, I, I can I can chime in uh, my, my voice on that. I mean, you know, you've got a few different angles to it. You've got regulations, you've got standards. Usually, I, I'd say, industry usually takes a lead and then until something happens that drives kind of you know b- that becomes a big news is when government tends to uh, uh step in at least from experience anyway so if you look at what's happening with the the driverless car industry it was hype for for a long time and then suddenly you 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 had some kind of high profile incidents that that happened and then there was a huge kind of amount of regulatory uh lockdown mostly around the uh, uh, i guess in the in the us market in the uk some of the things uh, i've seen and been involved in are kind of uh the government has showed a lot of curiosity and interest so there's a project called the um uh, uh ai black box to look into the decision making processes of robots and to plan in the future so that every robot that does something that you know impacts human life can explain and justify you know why that decision was was made so ultimately I, I feel like it's led by industry you know you have standards when industries realize that they have to work up different parties realize they have to work together to be able to then achieve scale if you don't have standards, you can't then start to scale that technology but ultimately if it has the potential to affect human lives on a large scale that is when uh, government seems to uh, step in i think
0: silas raises an interesting question with the self-driving cars there, Um, you know, there's always been this question of given different scenarios, what should a self driving car do? And this talks to things like the trolley problem in in philosophy. And I I think where this is very interesting is that, again, firstly, there's the values that you have to sort out and what actual choices should the system make. Um, Also bearing in mind relating that to how a human would have reacted in the same situation. But over and above that, there's questions around, you know, as i said, with kind of treating it as a black box. And you don't want to do that. You want to have some transparency in how decisions are made. So, for example, if there is an accident, um, who is held accountable? Why did that accident happen? And I think this just gets progressively more difficult to solve. If you look these days at um, some of these technologies have, say, machine learning components to them, it's possible that... A car could have um, gotten into an accident because of some of the training data that was fed to it and the way its systems were configured because of that. And now you might say that actually, in in some sense, an accident occurred because data came in from a set of drivers driving under different conditions to what you had in mind. And so now there's this big um, distribution in how you attribute the um, choices and the um, and the consequences for what happened. And that makes everything even more difficult.
2: I think it's so interesting because you have, you have technology solves a problem on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're creating new problems for ourselves to solve, to make our lives better ultimately. And that, that, you know, that leads into this new infrastructure that we're going to have to develop. And, and Silas, what you, your focus on now is now is on this cloud infrastructure. You know, what do we need to put in place so that we can have this big data uh, that can be transparent and shared and that we can scale, automate and scale robotics uh, faster?
3: I mean, some some of the the, the challenges you have, you know, is the, the huge volume of data. I think the the world has realized over the last kind of decade that the, you know, data is very valuable. You know, data is is gold. You know, when it comes to 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 enterprise, the more you know, the more you can see patterns, the more you can predict. And so, data provides an opportunity to make processes a lot more efficient, to not have to wait for something to you know to to put this into context for everyone that's listening, to not have to wait for a piece of machine in a factory to break down, but you know that okay, this has been running for this long, and it helps you to to be able to have. You know deal with warranty and 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 all of those it's called predictive uh, analysis and you know the, the some of the infrastructure that's needed in the near term for the world to really start being able to um take advantage of robotics and 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 automation technology is to do around data you know how do you move that volume of data and how do you have better uh, data right if you're looking at video uh, versus just raw files you know videos is, is, is much bigger much much longer uh as opposed to just raw text files or or just raw positional files if you're just looking at what direction robots are moving in and things like that so you know we're, we're picking a slice of that challenge which is rather than focusing on the automation technology itself how do you allow businesses that are creating automation technology or using this automation technology to be more efficient with their time and the limited resources that they have that is quickly connecting their devices to the cloud being able to share that data easily over a dashboard. And so that that then grows with them as they scale as well. And, um, you know, that's just one angle of the challenge. You could look at, you know, say 5G uh, uh, technology that's coming around the corner, for example, Um, you know, that's being touted as this thing that's gonna make everything infinitely faster, but that takes time to build as well. And that costs, you know, costs money. So there are different aspects of the ecosystem that, leverage each other to be better there's also the, the 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 part of it that's down to do with education you know if you don't have a sufficiently trained workforce that can actually use the robots and the automation technology you know efficiently you can't tap into that uh, the benefits of that technology as well so there are quite a few different aspects of it but you know what we are starting to focus on now is how do you make those people that are trying to use automation technology automation technology much more efficient.
1: Thanks so much for that. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about um, all the basic needs you would need to get, you know, food, water, shelter, and then the access to the internet through electricity as well. You know, the, the 5G, you know, towers essentially will take time to come up and essentially connect those dots. But something like a Starlink that, uh, you know, these satellites being shipped, at 60 satellites every week that's going up through SpaceX and Elon Musk's company will hopefully blanket the world in terms of access. Um, doesn't matter if you're in rural Australia or in a developing nation um, or in third world countries, but basically uh, as long as you can access to the sky, you have a line of sight, You'd be able to access the internet and you know combined with solar panels and battery technology will be able to supply that sort of level of energy access um, there was an x-prize learning uh, learning x-prize from um, uh, the x-prize foundation but basically it, uh, it had three winners uh, basically creating an open source technology uh, and google funded the deployment of one hundred thousand smart devices uh, essentially being able to take a, any child through a K to 12 education uh, and learning English along the way. So that sort of open source technology that's spread out through the smart devices connected to the cloud um, will enable that sort of revolution in understanding and using ai and robotics and to your point around you know that need to connect all the nodes uh, you need that connect- connected learning uh, companies like comma ai is probably like more under the radar they're i said essentially a direct competitor to tesla's autopilot Um, Comma AI is background essentially from uh, George Hotz, the guy that's jailbroken the iPhone. And uh, he essentially is trying to jailbreak cars, modern cars uh, with a dash cam, kind of like they they, uh, repurposed a smart device, a smartphone uh, and turn it into a dash cam that you can turn your modern car into a driverless vehicle. So this is level two autonomy. So it's none of the sort of hype around level four or five. Um, They just wanna make driving chill. But they're essentially crowdsourcing the collective learning of any driver that's installed this uh, comma AI device. They have the comma two now, using open source software called the Open Pilot, and they've actually accumulated over 50 million miles to date. Um, you know they have thousands of active, monthly active users, and they're generating revenue straight away. So that's one to look out for, and that's where you can still see the infrastructure being the connected nodes, along with your car-based servers styling connected internet more sensors um, and one more thing probably is the edge compute like the chips that require the ai to be computed at the very edge instead of pinging back to the servers because that delay will cause many accidents if you don't uh, make that happen really closely
2: wow it's it's so interesting to see that there are so many different areas of robotics i mean there's been a huge amount of predictions that robotics is going to be a trillion dollar industry and it will because of all these different verticals within robotics uh, that only once you get into the industry can you start finding your way in in this incredible field so we've got a whole bunch of questions i'm going to move to some of the questions from the audience Um, benj let's start with you Um, we've got a question from Tyrin jancef and fearin people are usually freaked out by the boston dynamics type robots how important is it to consider how people feel about robot design
0: So, that's an interesting question. And this is a, a problem that's existed in robotics for a long time. There's this notion of the uncanny value, which is that the more human like something gets, the more comfortable people are with it until you get to almost but not quite human like. And then people tend to have this feeling of revulsion and are really put off by things like robots that are, are almost human like. So, that's why you see a lot of um, designs of robots have historically tended to be more like cute anime figures or like animals or something like that to not put people off in that way. But there's also a lot of good reasons to try and make robots that are humanoid or human-like in their form. Um, and that's you know typically having legs and arms and a human kind of size. And that's because the world is designed for humans. And so if you want a robot to be able to operate in your natural environment. You want it to open doors and climb upstairs and so on. It has to have human-like proportions. So there's a tough balance to walk here. And I think a lot of it's actually come in with, the the challenges have come in with getting things like um, facial expressions right. And you'll see a lot of what Boston Dynamics do is they shy away from that in general. Um, And they are focused more on things like the walking and the arm movements, which I think are getting quite natural at this point. <clears throat> and, and I think that that's really the, the answer is to try to get that balance right. So it depends on your application. You could also find, um, so there's a lot of work that's been done with um, robots to interact with autistic children. And in that case, you can get away with using more cartoon-like characters because you don't need to be opening doors and interacting with environments.
2: Awesome. Silas, I mean, when you, when you made the Mechamon, I'm sure you had a lot of these considerations.
3: Um, yeah, of course. I mean, the, the Mechamon's case was, a, was interesting or different because that was a robot that was designed to, to get a reaction. So, you know, we wanted something that people couldn't ignore. You know, I've, I've had all sorts of comments. So Mechamon, if anyone hasn't seen it, you know, Google it later. It's a four-legged robot. Uh, Some people say it looks like a spider. Some people say it looks cute. But the thing is, like, people couldn't ignore it. And some of that, some of the the decisions that was made around designing that that robot uh, was, um, you know, we wanted something that was stable when it was walking around, when it was moving. Um, It needed to have a a minimum of four legs. You know, we even considered a six-leg version, but that was too creepy for people. So four was the balance of cost-efficient because the more legs you have as well, the more motors, the more joints, the more expensive uh, the the, the product is as well. And so to echo Benji's point, um, you know, you've always got this balance between functionality and, uh, and design, right? You need to have functional design. And I think the more robots start to come into, you know, our world, into the human world, and the more we see them in the same way, you know, product design is a big part of, you know, mobile phone, tablets, cars, you're also going to have, you know, product design being a big part of robots that are coming out uh, uh, to to market. Um, if people are repulsed by them, they're not going to do do a good job. They're not going to be able to serve us. So it's going to really be a case of that balance and listening to what yeah, people we're... want.
2: Thanks, Silas. I think we've lost you there. <laughs> um...
1: Yeah, no, yeah, I had fun, yeah. Um, but yeah in I'm a just similar gonna move vein, on to the next
2: question if you can still hear. Um <laughs> yeah, so we have got you guys. quite a few people asking the same question, and I'm just gonna sum it up with Lauren's question. How do you make a robot care about the future of humanity? <laughs> uh, Peter, if you want to answer that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the values of society and how you can embed that into a robot in the first place to then make it empathise with our cause. So uh, that is sort of a lot of the issues that are being tackled uh, with the development. The research in artificial general intelligence. Um, So I mentioned SingularityNet, Their their ultimate quest is to try to create artificial general intelligence. Same with OpenAI, same with uh, Google's DeepMind. So they're all part of the uh, the sort of um, the Future of Life Institute Um, essentially uh, an institute that's looking at existential risk and what AI might have uh, on humanity if essentially decides to turn on us, right? And, uh, you know, there are all those sort of um, uh, that Benji mentioned, the, the movies that depict it wrongly, but you don't really need a super intelligent, like, Ultra con- conscious AI to actually cause havoc, like as um, dictated by something like a Nick Bostrom's uh, super intelligence book, where it just keeps on creating paper clips. But how would you get AI to actually empathize with us? Yeah, well, so you start with the Embedding our values. Um, one of the reasons why Sophia, the robot, was designed to have uh, limbs was that it could empathise with humans to have the, a physical presence. You know, the arms and legs, and eventually powered by Singularity Net was the vision that Ben Goetzel had. So, if it could actually interact with people more and more and understand us as humans and how we actually care for each other and society. And uh, reflect the current state of social values and continue to uh, feed that in as society evolves. That's sort of how we could hopefully make the uh, robots care about humans in the future. But ultimately, I think um, from a transhumanist perspective, the best way would be to be able to merge with AI so that we're not actually left behind. uh, Because once an AI becomes, um, you know, artificial general intelligence, it'll probably immediately become super intelligent at the trajectory it's going. So it'd be like human level and then super intelligent almost immediately. Um, So that's why I think merging with AI will give us that sort of plan B insurance policy that we're not just being discarded like we would treat, like say pets, is the best case scenario. Um, We would be essentially along for the journey because merging with AI allows us to, uh, consciously connect with that as a tertiary layer uh, with these brain-computer interfaces, such as ones proposed by Neuralink.
2: Thanks so much. Benj, I can see you. Maybe I can a, a, you, you want to jump in there?
1: Well.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of talk about specifically one kind of approach someone could take. So this is something that I work on with some of my students in my lab. Um, you can take the idea that you want to build a robot that helps humans specifically. So we could say the objective of this robot is to help some human or whatever humans in its environment achieve whatever tasks it's trying to achieve. And so the work we're doing there is about, can you try and identify what the human is trying to do and then predict what would be the most useful thing you could do to help them with that goal? So while it doesn't have you know some sort of soft, fuzzy notion of empathy, it's designed in such a way to identify the human's goals and help them with it. So if you can estimate what this human's trying to achieve, what's maybe the hardest point along there, or um, where could it benefit? So for example, if you were trying to help a human in a workshop, maybe based on you see the human working on a car, and then based on what they're doing at the moment, maybe you can predict, ah, they're likely to need this screwdriver next. Um, Let me go across the workshop to fetch that for them and hopefully bring it back by the time the human needs it. And so a lot of that is just by watching behaviors and learning from enough data of interacting with humans, um, what humans do when they're looking for certain goals, and then trying to build a system that aligns with those goals specifically.
2: Super interesting. Uh, I think it's a that's, a, we need a, a lot more time to, to get deeper into this debate. And um, And um, I want to ask you another question from Arne Barman. Uh, What kind of economic model fits with robot-driven society? We've got quite a few questions around when the robots are starting to earn their own income and they start creating a new new economy in the market. Um, How are we going to deal with this in terms of our society? Uh, Silas, do you want to kick it off?
3: Um, hopefully you guys can hear me okay now and uh, there's no latency. All right, cool. I I think so. Um, I mean, that, that's also a very complex question to answer with many people taking different sides of the fence on it. You have people, you know, um, looking at a universal kind of robot tax where there's a certain value placed on how much improvement or how much additional revenue a, a robot changes. And that is then contributed to a site, a type of a pot that is is going back to 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 support uh, humans in the short term. Some of the changes that you're seeing in our robotics technology is deployed is to move from a model of uh, manufacturing one robot and selling that to somebody else to I am um, to to robots as a as a service where someone owns the 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 capital investment cost for the robot and then you essentially get paid a monthly fee for, for having that robot. And that helps you de-risk the investment in a robot initially, which then helps to kind of drive adoption of, uh, of the ro- robotics technology. So that's what I can tell you in terms of short-term changes, but in terms of long-term changes, that's more of a societal, uh, uh, challenge that will vary depending on the environment you're in.
2: I mean, I'm quite excited to think that my car, in the future, might be actually earning me extra money, as long as I own that car or I have some sort of uh, um, uh, some sort Would of. Would it be your car that. at that point? Sorry.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Would it be
1: your way. car? Yeah, that and that's
2: that you buy a car. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's so
1: earning the. New, production essentially, yeah it's free um yeah as, as we see more
0: automation
1: happen, more means of production is uh sort of focused on the hands of the few um and if you think about the you know shareholders of these tech companies they're essentially receiving dividends or you know keeping retaining the profits as more of the automation and the gdp is captured by these tech companies um so the the essentially the value of human labor essentially is The market share of that is diminishing as these robots are able to take more and more of that market share. And I think, you know, economically, we might look at something like, um, you know, a robot tax that Silas mentioned, or a universal basic income, essentially a a dividend to be a citizen in a jurisdiction. Um, We've seen the impact that COVID has had on, you know, a lot of the sort of middle class and uh, lower class around many countries. And it just goes to show how unstable that would be um, if more automation comes online to take away that sort of repetitive labour and the low-skilled work. Um, there's a lot of impact that's probably unaccounted for because we, if we look at historically um, at the Industrial Revolution, there was always new jobs created as a result of the automation. But this time it just feels like the speed, the pace of change might be too fast for people to retrain. By the time they retrain into those new, new skill sets, uh, the automation might actually overlap that sort of new roles that they're training for. So that is the risk uh, this time around in this fourth industrial revolution and how we prepare, you know, governments around the world of the impact of the social unrest, of the inequalities that may, might derive from, uh, from these uh, sort of use cases. So universal basic income is becoming more and more topical, as you can see in the U.S. right now.
0: I completely agree with Peter as well. Um, I think this is going to be one of the big questions of our time, not just with robots, but with automation in general. And as we see a larger and larger percentage of jobs and work in general being automated, I think, um, you know, we've got to reflect on this and see if it gives us the opportunity to redesign society in some way or another. And I think the the big question is really that, that you're going to see this, you know, all, all of the wealth accruing by the people that own these small numbers of, or or small company, or small numbers of companies. And um, yeah, I think things like UBI are definitely the way to go forward. I I like to flip this on its head and say that work is something immoral that robotics should be the solution to. And we've just got to figure out exactly how to implement this from an economical point of view um, to stop a lot of people doing work that actually... Is harmful to them and not, and and rather antithetical to a good quality life.
2: That's why I think it's so important yeah. that we are focusing on this because, especially during this COVID nineteen time, it's given us this opportunity, like you say, to reimagine and redesign the way we do things, and hopefully we can embrace these robots, you know, like we saw in the in the news section earlier, to really help us with some of these immoral type of jobs or you know putting ourselves in danger. When a robot could complete the task for us, um,
1: we going the to abundance keep of robotic um, re- 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 automation for people is pretty amazing. Just so that way, it sort of allows us to free up that capacity to work on things that we're actually passionate about. You know, we, we do things that we currently being unpaid for, like volunteering or you know, essentially home home caretaking, uh, the stay at home mums and dads there's a lot of roles out there that are essentially not being paid and accounted for in the GDP figures, but bring a lot of sort of meaning and purpose for people um, that they do it, right? So that's sort of being accounted for. That's where um, automation can lift up the means of production and then humans can live out to be humans and, and actually enjoy what they actually do.
2: Thanks so much. We're going to take two more, two more questions. We're running out of time. I'm going to just, we're going to go to Amin Boda. Amin Boda just asked, in your opinion, what is it that truly makes us human? I think that many people often forget the importance of human philosophical change that cannot be mutually exclusive to the technological changes that will be coming in the future. Silas, do you want to kick us off on that one?
3: (laughs) Quite a These are These are very deep. I mean these are the questions in line with the, the what is the meaning of life right so uh, you know my answer isn't gospel and um, you know everyone has an opinion on this you know um I, I guess it's easier to to answer a question of what isn't human right you know humans are ultimately complex you know we're only just starting to unpack what intelligence is um as we build robots and we try to make them intelligence you realize you know an iq score isn't enough to 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 judge the value of one person you've got emotional intelligence you've got different uh, facets of of intelligence so you know what does it mean to be to be human i think that's a deeply personal uh uh, uh thing for each person you know when i think human i think uh, uh creativity uh but that's also relative because you have a robot that can paint now you know does that mean that robot is is creative certainly certainly not but uh know what does it mean to to be human to be able to live love appreciate the 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 arts and i think it's going to be a a long time and also the capacity to care as well to see other life forms and to be able to to uplift them as well i think it's going to be a long time before we create something completely artificial that can do that by by itself and i see a future where no matter what type of robot, no matter what type of artificial intelligence we create, it will always have the, the human thread in there, which is why it's really important, like any other piece of technology, that we take deep consideration when we're building these technologies. We don't rush too far into this, We've, we're all just coming out of a pandemic, and we're seeing how things can spiral out of control when left unchecked. So there's no real answer in there. It's more topics that need to be considered when you're discussing these things.
2: Thanks. That's, I think that's a great answer. Um, we're going to move on to our last question and then I'm going to ask you all to just have a closing statement for some practical tips. We have a question from uh, Rona Kruger and uh, what's so inspiring for me is that Rona is in Israel and she is, uh, you don't have to just be a young teenager learning about robotics. Rona is also still learning And Rona's asked us, our fears make us wary of robots that will replace what we do. As we see human-like models, some confidence could develop and remove doubts. What do you think about that, Benj?
0: I think it's very natural to have those kind of fears. But I think at at the core, probably the most useful way to think about robots is to think about them as tools. right? So there's a new set of tools that we're currently building for the the toolbox of a human in a workplace. And you should think about what are these doing for you that can help make your life better. The example I always like to give is somebody who works in HR or human resources, probably got into that because they like interacting with people. But the reality is they spend most of their time doing paperwork and mundane systems that they have to file various things. And if you could automate those parts of their job, you could free up the parts of the job that really talk to their passions and what they care about, which is interacting with people. And so, if you think about a robot or any kind of automation as a tool in that way, there's a lot of there's infinite potential to make your your life better in ways that maybe you don't even realize are problems at the moment.
2: Thanks, thanks so much for that answer. Uh, we've run out of time, so I'm just going to ask uh, each of you if you can give us. There's been a lot of questions around what's the latest topics in robotics to research? Where can I learn? How do I start? I'm, I'm studying machine learning, but I'd like to get into robotics. Uh, Peter, let's start with you to, to just give us some closing remarks on what are practical tips? How do we get into robotics? What the, what's the latest and the greatest?
1: Yeah, I mean, have a mindset to be adaptable because that's probably going to be key. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you to learn a code because that's also a role that's heavily being automated now. You've seen OpenAI demo their automated Python code from uh, uh, Microsoft Build. And so, you know, nothing is sacred. <laughs> if you look at things that you can probably take on straight away, um, if you don't have the hardware capabilities, you can go to Unity. Uh, they have some ML agents they can train. So you can have these virtual robots and see how they interact with the environments there. Um, there's uh, cheaper hardware like the Arduino, the Raspberry Pi 4. that just come out with 64-bit OS and, and uh, 8 gigs of RAM, so uh, $75 will get you uh, quite a long way. Um, and then if you've got children or if you're just a, a love, an adult that loves robots, uh, check out the, uh, the Spiros that you can program quite easily. Um, and there's also the more expensive ones like the Sony iBo or a robotic pet that you can actually experiment with 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 all the sensors, going to the Sony cloud and learning your behaviors and and acting cuter as a dog so (laughs) check those out
2: thanks so much for that Silas over to you what can we do in Africa and uh, we look forward to you coming back soon
3: um yeah i mean uh great points by by peter in terms of if you want to get into robotics itself i'll talk uh you know around the the topic of of africa as a continent and our place when it comes to uh robotics and automation technology itself as well i mean you know first of all to young people watching this 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 video today i'm glad that uh We are, you know, I believe in a global world, but also when you create solutions, they need to be created, you know, around the local context that you're you're working in. And technology has never been more accessible uh, uh, than it is today. So as you go around looking at the world around you and seeing challenges, think of how, you know, robotics and automation technology can help to solve that. So looking at some of what Peter has said, taking that knowledge, and then that's when it becomes applied and then so you know those are people in the ecosystem we need that foundation to be able to build a better future um but then also there are the ecosystem enablers as well you know corporate people people also in this video call you know investors corporations it's a responsibility for us all to take care of a, a continent that we that we love uh so much and that comes by investing in in education and also investing in startups as well so that they can also build and grow. Everybody looks back and talks about the, the dot com, you know, boom and the bust, but you know, the invention of computing technology and the internet, looking back now and where we are today, it's it's a no-brainer that this has transformed human life so much. And that's the same thing that's gonna happen with robotics and artificial intelligence. So any investment that you do into that now is not going to be wasted and the continent will thank you for it.
2: Thanks so much. Uh, Benj, over to you for a closing statement.
0: Yeah, I mean, wow. Um, there's, there's so much to say here, but I'll try to keep it short. I think the main thing I always tell my students is work on the coolest thing you can. If you think this is cool, doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can work on it. There's so many resources online at the moment. There's everything like Coursera and Udacity and edX, all these platforms to get online courses. All the research papers that get published get put online as well, so you've got access to them. There's blogs, there's all sorts of content. And even as Peter was saying, there's simulators that you can download, you can use for free to start trying out ideas and so on. And then even kind of out of the virtual world, more and more universities are offering courses in machine learning and AI and robotics. I mean, we we have several in our department such courses and you can almost structure degrees around this at this point. I think the last point I'd like to add is to be open to collaboration. Working with robots is difficult. These are big, ambitious projects, some of the most exciting projects of our time. And it's very difficult for one person to do by themselves because there's questions around software, around hardware, around ethics, around interacting with people. And each of those components could need a few people to work on them. And and so... You really need that to build successful products, whether they're research ideas or products you want to push out into the world. Um, besides, it always helps to have people to bounce your ideas off and remind yourself that you're not crazy, or you are crazy, but in the right kind of way.
2: No, thanks so much. I really love that. Be adaptable. Make sure that you, you, know, you learn uh, robotics and, and, and don't give up. And, and, and just be open to collaboration because it's such a big field and you need uh, a team to, to work on these different areas. Uh, up next, we have the Share the Tech Love segment coming up. We'll be giving away some awesome prizes, some robots, and then we have a great performance from the amazing Boscasi. Um, From Jibo and from myself, thanks so much to our panel. It's really been a pleasure having you here today. Keep doing what you are doing. We appreciate all the work, you making the world a better place, and I hope you guys all collaborate together because you are, will create something special. Uh, thank you so much, guys. That's all we have time for today. hope you really enjoyed that. Please make sure to go and subscribe to our Exponential Africa on our podcast channels or our YouTube channel. Uh, we really, really would appreciate subscribe and keep watching and learning and making a positive difference in the world.